socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. 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 Oh, yes. It is episode 65 of You Don't Have to Yell, and we are less than one week away from Election Day. Thank God. It is the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here, and my next guest may be the rarest of rare birds in American politics, and you're talking to somebody who interviewed a rodeo cowboy turned candidate, so that's saying a lot. Liam O'Mara is someone who spent 10 years working as a longshoreman and a fry cook before deciding at age 30 to be the first person in his family to enter college. Then going on to get his PhD in history, and then going on to teach at a university level before deciding that wasn't enough and running as a Democratic candidate for California's 42nd Congressional District, one of the few places in California where being the Democratic candidate puts you at a disadvantage. Now, we had a chance to catch up, discuss some of the challenges the Democratic Party has faced reaching working-class voters, and how the economy can be restructured so we can use all this great wealth we're generating to enjoy life as opposed to working 50 to 60-hour work weeks. There may be cats making noise in the background. I'll be back at the end with some final thoughts. Uh, typically, like in this on this podcast, I focus a lot on uh, minor party candidates. So I and generally people who might represent the minority viewpoint of their of wherever they are. Uh, so I've had Texas Libertarians, Ohio Green Party people. I had one blue state Republican, but never, ever, ever have I ever thought that I would be interviewing a Democrat running against a Republican in California who is not an absolute shoe-in, right? Be- Am I right, though? Because uh, your district has been in Republican hands for like 20 years, correct? Uh, this is his 28th year. 28th? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 20- uh, okay. Definitely a career politician. Yeah, yeah. Why, what, what makes that district so red anyway? Like, why, are you, why do they vote red? Um, there are two basic reasons. One goes back to the population that was originally out here because the district was originally highly rural, lots mm-hmm. of farm country, very isolated areas. You know, uh, where my actual house is, is tech, was technically a 19th century ghost town. It's one of the last buildings surviving in the area. Okay. Um, so it has that kind of like rustic rural flavor. And the Republicans have done a pretty good job of snapping up a lot of traditionally socially conservative areas, even though Democrats used to do well there. Yes. It's pretty much become Republican territory in the last 50 years or so. Um, And then another part of it is that there are significant chunks of the district that are building up into, you know, new cities, you know, big big urban areas that are mostly houses, big bedroom communities. Yeah. But they're all kind of like Orange County transplant neighborhoods. So it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of the same kind of, um, well, to use one of the terms out of sociology, the the white flight that Mm -hmm. created a lot of Orange County in the first place. A lot of people leaving L.A. and moving out further into the suburbs and building up these new areas there. Um, And now because Orange County and and L.A. are still super expensive and getting more expensive, it's now crossing the mountains and filling the area up here. 
so is that making it more red or less red than now? It depends. A lot of it for a while was bring, was uh, was keeping it red because there were a lot of people who moved out here who still wanted that kind of um, Orange County lifestyle, the nice big McMansion and, you know, low property taxes and everything else. Um, and, but it is shifting because a lot of the populations moving in now are getting far more diverse. Um, there's a, a large and growing um, Hispanic working class population. There's growing um, uh, immigrant populations in some of the major, bigger cities like Corona that have been shifting the demography there. And a lot of people that have been moving in in the last 10 years really just haven't engaged as much politically yet. Mm-hmm. Many of them haven't even updated their voter registrations or stayed involved because they realize this is a pretty red area, not really my thing, and they just kind of checked out from it. So it's a matter of actually, I mean, some of the, the areas um, still have astonishingly low turnout. The areas that built up in these um, bedroom communities more recently, the places that vote more consistently are the cities that have been growing more, you know, over a longer period of time. Okay. Got it. And now, so were you born and raised in the district then? I was born and raised in Southern California, okay. but I've actually lived in three different counties. Oh, okay. And oh, I, well, actually, no, I've lived in four, I've lived in four of them. <laughs> All right. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I grew up in LA County um, in the, uh, basically the Long Beach area. Um, and then I did my, uh, my graduate work at UC, UC Irvine. So I lived in Orange County for a while. And then as I was, um, at, as I started teaching, I jumped over the mountains into uh, Riverside County. So I've lived out here for about 10 years. Um, big because I also kind of like that sort of rural environment. I mean, my father's a, a desert rat. His place is up in Yucca Valley in the high desert. And my grandfather's cabin was up in Wrightwood in the mountains. And I've always really appreciated that kind of rustic feel anyway. Yeah. It also was equidistant to campuses in several counties. So it let me pick up classes in San Bernardino, San Diego, L.A., Orange. It really didn't matter. Everything was an hour away. Yeah. And for those unfamiliar with Southern California geography, and especially for those of us from small states like my state of Massachusetts, where we fall out of bed the wrong way and we've crossed the state line, uh, right. the counties in California are I mean, they're they're their own metro regions, effectively. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about living in different counties, you're talking about a wide uh, variety of uh, communities, but also a wide, a long distance. You'd say hour, two hour drive between them. Would you say is that right? Or no, they they're they're a lot of these counties are humongous. Yeah, I mean, quite a few of the counties in Southern California are larger than than well, they're, they're larger than Massachusetts. I mean, yeah, we have some massive, massive counties out here. The some of the urban parts, a lot of the, the metro areas are part of the same general metro area. So Southwest Riverside County, where I am, is for census purposes, still part of the same metro area as Orange County and Los Angeles County. Okay. There's a, there's only, there's a handful of narrow bottlenecks where you're basically going through a, a valley. <laughs> in mountains yeah. to get to but, but as soon as you're on the other side, it's built up again and all urban. So they lump it into the same basic area. Yeah. The distances do get wider and you're crossing large swaths of desert or mountains in order to get somewhere. Yeah. And I think, you know, in line with everything I've read about you, your your background is really interesting. And I'd really I'd like to start at the beginning. Uh, so could, could you just talk a little bit about your family and kind of how you were raised, how you grew up? Um, sure. Yeah. Like I'm from a, a working class family. So I'm, I'm a, I'm a first generation college student. No one in my family had finished a degree. My, mm-hmm. um, my father was a, a Marine clerk in the port of, um, Los Angeles and Long Beach. Mm-hmm. So we worked on the waterfront. 
as did his father and his grandfather. So one of my earlier jobs was actually a fourth generation longshoreman in the port. I read that. I read that. And now were they political or, or not so much? Uh, well, you mean, <laughs> sorry, the longshoreman's union historically is very political. Yeah. Uh, but the family, yes. And yes and no. Mm-hmm. The, um, the older gener- yeah, actually to some extent. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always been some elements of that, but less so in some of the ways that you might think like the, the Irish roots were particularly important to my mm-hmm. great grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, he um, he was the first born in, in the U.S. His um, his his parents had come from uh, um, from Ireland, and okay. um, he grew up with a, a strong connection to um, to Irish nationalism and to typical labor leftist sort of causes that mm-hmm. underlay, underlay that, uh, and kind of passed that along. He was born in Hell's Kitchen in New York. He was the one that migrated over to the West Coast. All right, you know, got going uh, here. All right. But political from from that standpoint, yes, but less so in terms of like U.S. politics. My father was frequently checked out from U.S. politics in terms of the parties, mm-hmm. largely because he tends to think that everyone is crooked uh-huh. <laughs> um, and just doesn't just doesn't trust politicians. And it's it's hard to say that's you know entirely unfounded. But he did in his youth. I mean, he did idolize some of the politicians like Kennedy. And mm-hmm. thought that we were, you know, we were doing something great then, and he's just been progressively disillusioned in the decades since then. It, it's funny because here in Boston we have a very similar setup where there is a what what drove politics in Boston for a very long time were a mix of I guess what you'd call uh, educated uh, liberals, and then you had your your union base of the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And they voted the same. Functionally, from an electoral standpoint, they were the same. Uh, culturally, very, very different. Right, yeah. And one of the reasons that I'm involved in politics is that the Democratic Party and its central institutions, the decision to drift away from those working class roots in the early 70s, has had some seriously negative consequences in this country. I want to oh. get us back to where they're they're more like in sync yeah agreed like even what i what i've seen going on here over the last four years is the union vote the or the union voters uh who would traditionally vote democrat you know the union itself supports whoever the democratic candidate is uh but the union membership really swings for trump so yeah on a local level yeah on a local level they're voting democratic but on a national level they're definitely swinging much more to the right um and so you actually spent most of your 20s working uh, in, you know, wor- in working class jobs until going to college at the age of 30, correct? Right. So, yeah, I, I worked as a longshoreman and um, uh, drove 18 wheelers. I actually carried a class A driver's license in California for 20 okay. years. So it definitely affects you a little bit. You know, like when, once you learn how to parallel park an 18 wheeler, everything is easy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but did that and then also worked as a, as a fry cook. Um, I, I basically moved my way up to eventually like kind of you know, managing the, the kitchen side, you know, running the staff back there. Um, my path into college started with part-time work with some computers. I had some friends that also worked in the restaurant that I was at. You know, their, their uncle ran a, a little computer consulting business, and they did that on the side, and then they sucked me into that because – I was always a tinker and like putting things back together anyway. So I, I quickly picked up a lot of that and then ended up jumping 
out of those professions and into basically managing computer networks. Mm-hmm. But I mean, obviously no degrees, no formal training, just tons and tons of books. And the fact that I've always tinkered with these things on my own, you know, I mean, yeah. I've, um, I'm, I'm actually terrible at helping people in terms of like end user computer stuff because I never used like Windows or Macintosh type stuff. I was always using Unix or Linux. Yeah, well, that was the, the funniest thing. So, and I'll let the folks listening to this in on a little inside baseball, you know, and I was emailing back and forth with Jacob, your scheduler. Uh, I have, a, there's a particular software I use to record. And he asked me, does this work on Linux? And first off, I've never gotten next question. And for some reason, I felt like this was the one where there was going to be some funky tech setup where, <laughs> uh, where, where, my so- where the software I use, Zencaster, didn't work. And I-, I have to imagine that's the bane of Jacob's existence right there, is making sure that whatever you're talking on works on Linux, because you were the first as well. Yeah, it can be. I mean, realistically, at this point, they all do, but there are different um, hoops I'll have to jump through to be, to be prepared for them. Yeah, yeah. So with some of them, um, getting the things connected through the browser, like the Zencaster will do, I'll actually have to do it like in Firefox, but not Chrome, or I'll do it in an incognito window as opposed to the other, because there's like little quirks in, that it expects that just don't work the same way. Yeah. Get them to work. I will spare you that pain. I will <laughs> absolutely spare you that pain. So you know, do you feel like that, that, that working class background, you know, the fact that for a decade before going to college, um, you were working as a longshoreman, you were working as a fry cook. Um, do you feel like that sort of shaped who you are as a candidate or that helps you relate to folks in the district a little differently or a little better? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not out of the traditional ruling class. I'm not somebody who, was well off and raised well off and sort of expects or feels kind of entitled to these things. It was one of the interesting things in academic. Uh, it was actually a multi-year odyssey of learning to take myself seriously enough <laughs> to talk <laughs> about these issues because I've always been a nerd. Uh, working class, yes, but I used to just spend every, every hour I could at the, at the libraries just sucking things in and I mean, the, the, the standard running joke among my friends and family, I mean, my, my mother's always har- harassed me because I just, I don't have nice furniture in my house Yeah, <laughs> because I have 34 bookcases. That's what I bought. Like I, my, my investment is like, I'm always like picking up something new and, you know, going through books, several books a week. Uh, so it was interesting to be able to move into a profession where I could use that foundation but I was accustomed to never talking about these things or to talking about them only in um, the most restricted sense because, again, my people, so to speak, are not people with a, a formal education. Yeah. It, it wouldn't make sense to sit there and dive into you know, long discussions on philosophy or economics or something. Uh, so I just never did. Yeah. And it was a real revelation for me getting into graduate school and sitting in seminars and looking around the room and realizing – all these other people have read these books too. Wow. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you really kind of found your people then, huh? In a sense, yeah. um, but, but really not quite. And that's where the, the funny thing is. I really do see myself living in two worlds mm-hmm. because while I can, I have people that I can talk to about those, those issues and some like more esoteric type stuff. I still don't relate well to people. I mean, I am as far as you can possibly get from the cloistered ivory tower academic. I mean, I never took off my steel toe boots. You know, I don't, I don't see myself 
thoroughly fitting into those kind of worlds, you know, and that, both as an academic and as a politician, I, I'm not, I'm not changing that. That's, that's part of who I am. And I just, I don't relate to people who had that kind of bougie upbringing. Mm-hmm. And I'm much more comfortable in many ways, just sitting around with friends telling, you know, just bad jokes and watching cheesy cartoons and whatnot. Yeah. So as opposed to, you know, but I still, I can enjoy like sitting in a coffee house and chatting with somebody too. So it's like, I'm, I have this interesting dual life now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I do think it, it, it sounds like you, you've, you kind of touched on this earlier that you seem to feel like the, the party at the very least has to move just a little more in that direction or tack a little more in that direction than it's been doing over the last, let's call it 20 years or so. Is that fair? No, yeah, and a, a, a good bit more than that. I mean, it, it honestly frustrates me as a historian that it's so difficult for institutions to change or to recognize the, the altered logics. They they tend to think this works, this and they do their thing and have a hard time taking the, the view from 10,000 feet and mm-hmm. recognizing what's going on. The, the shifts in the early 70s made the phenomenon of Reagan Democrats inevitable because the conservatives saw an opening and jumped in and started speaking to working class people and working class issues. They were selling a con job because they're selling policies that make things harder for working people, but they packaged them in a really effective way. And when Democrats simply stopped speaking that language, they mm-hmm. gave up those voters. The Reagan Democrats should have been a huge flashing warning sign. And people wrote it up. Well, Reagan was super charismatic because he was an actor and it was just him it wasn't him. Yeah. I mean, that drift of the working class toward the Republican Party has been steady for decades now. And it's making it harder to hold seats. I mean, Democrats used to control uh, about three quarters of state houses, and they have one third of them today. Mm-hmm. We dominated the House of Representatives for 40 years, and it's hard to hold it at all now. Yeah, I think that that's something that a lot of people who are, are currently aligned with the Democratic Party don't understand. I, I don't think they understand exactly. And you can correct me if you disagree here. I, I don't think they they necessarily understand the mindset of the union voter. And I don't think they understand that these that a lot of and I and I wouldn't say that the Democratic Party has to drift away from the social mission at all. But I do think that it has to be more than that. To, right. to get your, your, your union, your working class voter engaged. Exactly. Yeah. So, that really is the key issue there because I, I have found that um, my, my core issues resonate with a lot of people who actually self-identify conservatively, but I'm not rubbing in their faces the areas in which we disagree on those social issues because that isn't the focus of the campaign. So you can still get past it. What people are often doing now and what a lot of Democrats have gotten used to doing over the last few decades is sort of writing off large parts of the electorate as, I don't know, hicks and yokels and just whatever. Um, but we are forgetting that Democrats used to dominate farm country. Mm-hmm. We control these, these areas for a long, long time. And it's not that they were any less socially conservative then than they are now. They were just as socially conservative because any isolated community tends to be. Yeah, well, exposure. But we talked about the, the issues for farmers and working people. If you go to Minnesota, and I don't know if I, I don't know if this is in the Dakotas as well, but the official name of the Democratic Party or the State Democratic Party is Democratic Farmers and Laborers Party. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So that, 
a mission for the Democratic Party as a whole for a long time, and we've just abandoned that. Yeah. So what are some of the policies then that you feel are resonating most with that group that maybe has been alienated or maybe has drift aw- drifted away from the, the Democratic Party? In large part, it's a matter of the aesthetic and the framing more than anything else, because policies can be addressed in any number of ways. Yeah. And the details of policy, and this is not in any way a disparagement, they're honestly never going to matter to most voters, even yeah. highly the voters don't spend the time reading bills. At best, they'll read an article about something or a few lines about something, or they'll hear it in a coffee shop, and that's usually enough. The details of policy don't hold the attention of most voters, and that's fine. But the focus of your politics really matters. And for me, the focus is on people and families and small businesses, not on giant corporations and big banks and the military-industrial complex. I'm talking about – I'll take what would – often be considered generally progressive policies, and I'll frame them in a way that puts them into, um, well, basic kitchen table economics. How is this going to affect you? What will this do to your budget? And how will this help your children? Yep. Yep. And that's actually how you and I started talking. Because, uh, again, letting folks in, uh, I was on Twitter about a week ago, and it was a tweet you put out related to tax policy. And you and I got into a discussion about whether that's the best way to address the wealth gap or not. Um, but your focus in that tweet, and we can, I'd love to dive into this a little bit. Your focus was really very much on not on penalizing Bezos or penalizing Bill Gates or whoever, because who cares? I don't, you know, Mark Zuckerberg can buy as many Hawaiian islands as he wants. That's, you know, not going to put food on my table or take food away. And that was really cool. I love the way you really focused on the experience of the average per- the average uh, voter. And I want to get into that a little bit. But one question I have is, as you're, you know, as you're talking to voters out there, like what parts of the platform are resonating most with them? Well, when we bring up a lot of these issues, the discussion about how they're going to affect people really stands out. Yeah. So yeah. in our area, for example, we have stubbornly high levels of poverty mm-hmm. that hasn't budged at all in decades. So, I mean, in all the other development and all these nice new bedroom communities and all the places that are building up and more shops are opening, the level of poverty stays stubbornly high in the area. And because more people are moving out, the prices are going up, which means more people are falling into poverty and having a harder time paying the bills. Even if you're staying afloat, you're now paying half or 60% or 70% of your income on housing because the, as the value of the land goes up, your rent keeps going up. But we're not actually developing the local economy. I, uh, I have a memorable experience really a few years ago. Just I'm in a, um, a Lake Elsinore City Council meeting. And the mayor is just bragging about their economic development plan because a Popeye's chicken is opening up, mm-hmm. bringing businesses to Lake Elsinore. And I'm like, what? Like, okay, it's a Popeye's chicken. This is not a good job in the first place. Mm-hmm. And all of it is going to be automated away. Mm-hmm. I mean, those, those service industry jobs are, are disappearing in the same way that manufacturing jobs are disappearing and tons of office jobs are going away to AI. Mm-hmm. 47% of our jobs are at risk as it is. But if your economic development plan is to focus on the jobs that are most endangered, like service sector jobs, and our areas filled with logistics and warehousing, 
one of the reasons we have among the worst air quality in the entire country because mm-hmm. we have so many giant warehouses, all the trucks pulling in and out and all of them belching their smoke up into the air. And we get no benefit from that because the warehouses are being automated away. They're going to be all like robots. I mean, the, the joke I like to use is it's eventually going to be like one guy and a dog, the guy to feed the dog and the dog. Yeah. That, and that's it. You know, like it's all going to be computers and the robots moving the stuff around. But the trucks too. The trucks, the trucking industry is is um, on its way to extinction. Mm-hmm. They will automate away all those jobs as well. So, what are we doing for long term economic development in this area? More than one third of the population in my congressional district commutes out of the county for work. So, our traffic is horrendous. The air quality is horrendous. Our quality of life is low because we spend so much time in our cars. And it's all because we're not developing the local economy here. We're seeing ourselves as an appendage to LA. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who maybe live outside of more expensive metro regions uh, don't know about the about what, ha- what I think what's happened to your major, especially your major coastal cities in the last few decades, because, you know, what I've seen happen, and I, and I know this has happened in Southern California as well, is that uh, as uh, income disparities have increased, you have more people buying up the more favorable real estate closest to where the action is. Uh, you have people who make less money getting pushed further and further out. And then one of the examples you're citing here is it sounds like in your district specifically, there's almost a health tax to living there because of all that pollution. So, yeah. Further out because we can't afford the nicer houses, but you might still think, oh, I still want at least some kind of, you know, suburban life, a nice apartment complex or a house or whatever. So you move out here um, and then you, you suffer a lot more. You spend more time in your car. You've got the worst air and water quality. And the people that were already here, because the local economy isn't growing and they weren't commuting out for their jobs. They weren't some professional who moved into the area. Mm-hmm. They suffer the most because their cost of living skyrockets without their wages going up. And as it is, I mean, wages have been flat in this country for 40 years. My entire life, I mean, you just for inflation, we're not being paid any better. Yeah. And that was actually, that was the root of our, our conversation, our debate on Twitter, because um, what, what I, what I believe for, uh, some time now is if you look at income inequality in this country, uh, a lot of it is rooted in the fact that the most wealthy have their money in stock. So if you look at people who trade their, you know, their time for money or their capital for more capital, the people who trade their time for money have remained flat or in some cases declined. If you take inflation into account, the people who trade their money for more money have done fantastically well. This has worked out great for them. And Part of the reason, to your point, is that businesses can't afford to automate away certain jobs or businesses can choose to suppress wages via a legal form. So a couple great examples are you have Uber, where people are driving cars with really no guarantees in terms of benefits, in terms of wages. You have Walmart, which intentionally uh, keeps people from working 40 hours a week or working uh, full-time, uh, full-time hours so they don't have to pay benefits and they don't have to really give the same benefits that a full-time job would give them. And in my mind, if we focus on the, I don't want to call it the bottom end, but if we focus on the end of the working class, if we focus on the end of the people, uh, at the people working at the ground level, and we say that if you are a business 
you and you're going to hire people, they, there has to be uh, regulations around providing a livable wage. There has to be stricter regulations around providing benefits like healthcare, for example, uh, paid sick leave, all those things. And in my mind, that addresses income disparities in, in two ways. Number one, of course, from the bottom, there's more money now. People are, uh, are able to provide for themselves. People have disposable income. That benefits the economy. But the second part of that is the people at the top who have their money in stock actually see the return they're getting on those assets decline. Because one of the things that drives stock prices are profitability. And one of the things that maintains profitability are being able to keep labor costs low. So, so- I want to ask, like, so far, everything I've said, you agree with all this? And is there anything you'd add, amend, edit to that? Yeah, there is. Um, okay. Okay. So first off, in terms of our, um, our capital-centered jobs, 85% of stock is owned by 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. So most people are still working people yeah. and don't really benefit from that. So you're talking about a huge swath of the population overall. And the trick here is if we deal with it in um, – in more regulatory terms, if we did, or, or only in regulatory terms, where we're saying you have to provide better wages, you have to provide better benefits, but you don't change the underlying um, economic structure that has mm-hmm. you know, pushed us in this direction, then what that does is it increases the pressure to automate quickly and to simply eliminate the jobs entirely because they don't want to see the cost there. And as it is, one of the single biggest problems that have kept wages down that have artificially depressed wages is actually automation. It's increased productivity. Mm. And the problem here is that as productivity goes up through automation, right? What it does is if you don't increase the wages for ordinary people, we're able to spend less. So there's less of a direct return on that investment in the first place. Whereas if you put more money in the hands of poor people, they spend it by buying more stuff and the economy grows faster. But the reason that we see that, that split really is that you've changed the incentive structure for pay so that it can concentrate. I mean, if you go back to the 1960s, 90% of transactions in the stock market were actually rooted in some way in the real economy. They, they dealt with big companies like General Electric and General Motors and you know, tons of jobs and facilities and money circulating. And today those companies are, I mean, you could buy GE stock for like 30 bucks or whatever, but like your apples or whatever, are 300. I mean, it's all the, it's almost all speculation today. It's got, it's, it's flipped entirely. It's about 90% speculative, which means that money is basically just a, I don't know, it's just floating around. It's doing its own thing. It has really no benefit to us at all. Yeah. And that disconnect is a significant problem overall, mm-hmm. but don't- you don't fix it by just doing the regulation because again, it, all it does is it pushes more automation because they think short term. Mm-hmm. And if they do that, then there's even less money and then the entire economy collapses. So, and just, just, so just to make sure I understand then if we simply just say, let's raise wages, let's raise the, the, the living standard for uh, the, the working class or the folks at the, the on the front lines, what we end up with is, is a situation where investments in more automation become more justifiable because now people have just gotten more expensive. Okay. Yeah, because the key here is, and this is really why it always has required a, for, a, any, for a capitalist economy to work, you need to balance the interests of um, the public and private sectors. Basically, mm-hmm. the government's job is to look holistically at the economy and at the welfare of the people but not to think about how business works. The business's job is to make money for the owners and the shareholders. 
which means their thinking is focused solely on the best return on their investment and generally in short-term thinking. So mm-hmm. if I can save a little bit of money in the next few years by doing X, I'm going to do it. And because that's actually required by the, the, the structure of the business, you have to do that. But if they do that, it screws the entire economy up. It hurts all of us, which in the long run hurts the company too. But companies don't have the responsibility or the generally the capability to think in those broader terms. So the state has to do that. Understood. So then we're still agreed that there needs to be better management of uh, of the minimum wage, better management in terms of, of what benefits you're, are guaranteed to all working people. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the other things you feel would help address this issue of inequality or or allow more of that money to be more equitably shared across the population? Well, the key really is to get past the nonsensical Chicago school trickle-down crap. I mean, wealth does not trickle down. It just doesn't. When it concentrates on the top, it's literally removed from the economy. It's no longer in circulation, so it's not actually helping growth rates. It slows growth rates overall. You might get the occasional short-term investment in something, but realistically, those companies would invest anyway and would probably invest much more if they had the smaller returns. It's not like we didn't create tons of powerful multinational corporations and tons of millionaires in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, we did. We created a lot. We, we created a world-class economy. But what you do have to do is basically remove a lot of the, um, the loopholes that they use mm-hmm. to sock cash overseas and take it out of the economy, stowing things in the Cayman Islands, you know, doing weird like inversions so they can stop paying taxes entirely. You know, cut a lot of that abuse out. Mm-hmm. By simply making making it harder for capital flight to operate the way it does. Yeah. More importantly, um, if you look at all the other developed countries in the world that do have far lower levels of inequality, the key difference is the marginal tax rates. Um, right now, if you look at developed economies all around the world, where you're talking about East Asia, like Japan or whatever, or you're in Western Europe or anywhere else, the difference between like an ordinary worker and the CEO is anywhere from like 10 to 25 times the income. Mm-hmm. And in the U.S., it's three to 400 times. It's coming like 377 times what your ordinary worker makes. And that's literally impossible with high, ta- with, with high marginal taxes. The business would not make the decision to say, I'm going to give person X $20 million because it would just disappear to the government. So what's the point? It mm-hmm. sets the compensation lower. And by doing that, It ends up, if you set other incentives, right, again, for investment in our economy, which, again, this is why capital flight matters, then that money gets invested in growing the business, opening new facilities, and paying workers more. And if they pay workers more, we buy more stuff, which means the business has a whole benefits. What they're doing is not... It's not in any way beneficial even to them in the long term. It's, it's, uh, It's literally undermining the capitalist economy. But again, the business logic focuses on short-term returns for shareholders. That's their job. On their own, if they would just destroy the entire economy just to make a quick buck, and you can't blame them for that. We have to have that collaboration. We are going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a moment with Liam O'Mara. 
I hope you're enjoying this episode, and I wanted to take a quick break and alert you of some additional content you may want to dig into if you are digging the subject matter. Now, if you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more, I've got some additional resources in the show notes on ydhty.com. For those of you unfamiliar with the URL, that is Y is in you, D is in don't, H is in have, and you can probably fill in the rest.com. Just click the link that says episodes in the upper right hand corner and follow the rest. You can figure it out. You can also find an article I wrote making an argument for not throwing out the Electoral College that I really wanted to get out before Election Day comes and everybody goes bananas. So if that sounds intriguing, you can also get that on YDHTY.com. Lastly, we cut out part of the episode where Liam and I discuss how the current relationship between the wealthy and paying taxes mimics the behaviors that were part of the Roman Empire's decline. I have also listed that on the site for you history geeks. Questions, comments, fill out the form on the site or reach me on social media via the hashtag YDHTY. And now, back to Liam. And getting back to you know the folks in your district, in, in my mind, the aversion to taxes or the aversion to, to changing the tax code and this, this idea that uh, lower tax rates automatically equal higher economic growth. That's really been the result of just some great marketing. Yeah, just yeah some, fantastic propaganda. Yeah, yeah. And the incumbent benefits from that. He keeps arguing that he lowered taxes. But I, I'm, I'm, what I try to do, and this is something that I have massive, massive criticism of other Democrats and progressives for, mm-hmm. because we often accede to the arguments of the right on economics. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, you, you have these, these great dreams of things you want to do, and I get that they're investments, but they still cost money, and you're going to raise taxes. Well, yes, we have to raise taxes, but – and you've lost the argument as soon as you say that. The policies that I'm talking about would actually lower the tax burden for the entire population in my district. Mm-hmm. It would lower our taxes. If you look back at the tax rate for ordinary Americans for like 95% of the, of the country, go back into the Eisenhower era, and we paid less than half of the taxes that we pay today. Our taxes had to go up. And a lot of this is balanced out like um, at the local and state levels. Yeah, State taxes have had to go up tremendously. Local taxes have had to go up tremendously because the federal investment disappeared. And they have to make that money up. Instead of dumping money into education and infrastructure and whatnot, it's now the local area's responsibility. So our tax rates are literally more than double what they were when we had high marginal taxes on the rich. Yeah, we've and we've seen the same thing happen in Massachusetts here as well, where uh, we were a very high tax state for a very long time. And through a series of Republican governors, who would I, I would probably argue would probably run as Democrats in other states, to be totally fair. But uh, we had a couple of Republican governors who cut the state tax burden. But the issue is, is that just all got transferred to fees. It got transferred to in the in the way of less local aid. And so eventually you either paid for it or you got less. But there were. Exactly. And and we're seeing the results of a lot of that all across this country in our declining educational standards and our collapsing infrastructure. We're rated a D in our infrastructure quality. 
in the yeah. rich world, which is just insane. And our, our educational outcomes continue to collapse because you're basing it on local property taxes rather than direct federal investment. I want to throw something at you. This isn't in the, this isn't in the outline I sent to you, but I want to throw something at you since you're a, a student of history um, and get, get your take on this. Um, you know, where, where we are right now is, is, is arguably the result of a huge technical, technological revolution that really probably started in the 80s and 90s and has been growing ever since. Similar to the Industrial Revolution, where the, the value of, uh, of labor, for lack of a better phrasing, the value of a person's hour of work went down because you had all these machines that were just doing the job for you. Um, and it took a while for our economy to dig itself out of that. I mean, the organized labor movement is a direct result of the industrial revolution. It's a direct result of the fact that the power of the average working person was diminished as a result of these machines. And again, the concentration was in the hands of uh, the uh, the industrialists, the wealthy industrialists. And, and I think we're in that era now, but I think the second part about it, and probably something a little more challenging, is that whatever that next revolution is, is going to happen a whole lot quicker than the last one. And it's going to keep shrinking. And so I'll throw this out to you because I haven't figured this out yet. How do we have an economy or how do we structure the economy in a way so people who, the, the skills that somebody learned in let's say college or in school or whatever, aren't obsolete the instant they come out? Or how do we ensure that those people are able to make a living and it's not just this small cadre of economic favored sons getting by and everybody else just struggles? Okay, so there's um, a few different things to throw into there. Um, First off, in terms of skills, Mm -hmm. we have to get past this idea that going to school is about getting a job. Mm -hmm that that really is its, its purpose. The point of, of college educations is to produce a well-rounded person who is able to continue learning throughout their life. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking of college as giving you a job skill, you're, you're only shooting yourself in the foot because your skills are going to be out of date. And if you don't spend your time instead focusing on the critical reasoning skills and being that well-rounded person, you're going to be at a disadvantage. But in terms of people who don't go to college, which obviously is going to be a significant chunk of the population and state yeah. that then you have to maintain um, a dedication to lifelong learning in other areas. A lot of economies that maintain consistently low levels of unemployment, but consistently high levels of, you know, uh, real economic growth. I mean, uh, hell, I mean, the Nordic countries, Germany, a lot, the Northern European countries, they all have trade surpluses. Mm -hmm. They all export plenty. They still make lots of stuff. They didn't, I mean, they didn't lose their job, lose their jobs to like China or Mexico or something here. They keep making things. But as the manufacturing grew more complicated technically, they would always retrain people. If your industry started to collapse through competition, you were retrained for another industry. Mm-hmm. You don't leave people behind and give up on them. And we don't do that in the U.S. In fact, when people often try to do it, there was, a, there was an effort to like take you know, former coal miners and whatnot in Appalachia and train them to be like coders so they could work from home and it wouldn't matter that they were, you know, pretty far away. They could still work remotely and take these jobs. And we slashed the funding for that. In fact, mm. Trump slashed it even further. We, we tend not to care. Uh, I mean, if we gave people the skills to compete, plenty of people would still work. It's one of the reasons that 
in whatever automation has taken away jobs through all of our previous economic transformations, we've always managed to keep people working because we've been able to retrain people. The United States simply got worse at that than literally any other rich country. We stopped investing in, in our people. Yeah. So where would you borrow from? Like what country would you borrow from and what would that look like in the United States? Yeah, it really depends on the specific issues um, because yeah. I, I don't really, it, it's not as a matter of, of just some kind of like linear comparison or this or that. Everyone has like good ideas and bad and it's a matter of like pulling them together, you know, in, yeah. in own kind of like eclectic fashion to fit specific problems. But I do think we need to do a better job in high school of helping to figure out who's going to college and who's not, and mm -hmm. then you know, provide a path immediately into trade schools for people. Mm -hmm. And I want, you know, I not only want tuition, tu pardon me, tuition-free college, I want tuition-free trade schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is something the Germans do actually very well. Um, you know, people end up heading off to become an electrician right out of high school, and they get the years of training to become a good electrician, and they've got a good job. And they, they can get regular retraining in these areas and keep building up their skills and certifications, or you get sorted and you go off to college right away. But there's that, um, there's a path laid out and there's a consistent interest in doing it. And none of it involves racking up tons of debt because the trade schools and colleges are all tuition free. Mm -hmm. They're just part of your birthright living there and realistically part of a good thriving economy. Yeah. Well, I've, I've said on this podcast a couple of times before, if you're ever having trouble figuring out where to send your kid to college, or you're ever trying to figure out what your kid's going to do for a living, just try getting an electrician to return your calls. And that'll answer it really quick. Um, so, so in your mind then, really, if, if, we're, if we're really to restructure the economy and we're to make everybody more resilient to what will no doubt be a continuing wave of innovations and a continuing wave of changing jobs, disruption, the, the key is, is to make education as available and as cheap as possible to as many people. It's a significant part of it. It's not all of it. Yeah. So I did want to like throw a couple of other pieces on here, um, but it is a very significant part of it because if we invest in Americans... Mm -hmm. If we give people the skills to work in these trades or give people the skills you know, in, through college and everything else in order to compete in these new fields, then, yeah, your job isn't going to disappear. But tons of people, are, they're going to go away. You know, like, yeah. again, I mentioned service sector, transport, manufacturing. There's always tons of great manufacturing jobs available in this country, but people don't have the skills to run the highly complex computer systems that exist in today's factories. One of the things that often gets lost in the rhetoric, both from the uh, the Trump types and the Sanders types, is that the United States actually manufactures more than we ever did. We just do it with millions fewer workers, mm -hmm. which means that the actual factors are far more technically demanding and challenging. And if we're not training our workers to run them, we've got a real problem there. Well, well, we're going to lose a whole lot more jobs to, to artificial intelligence and, and, and the biotech revolutions as well. Yeah. Well, and, and not to mention, there are manufacturing jobs that are just unfilled at this point, but they just require a different and higher level of training. than Exactly. They're there, we, but people don't qualify for them. So mm -hmm. they're always like looking to try and import people that have those skills because for some reason, the U.S. decided to stop investing in its workers and decided to start forcing the worker to pay for their own training. But a bigger part where I said like the training isn't all of it. Yeah. So let's, let's at least lay that out and then we can go wherever we're going to go from there. The other part of it really has to be thinking long-term about work. 
One of the things that's different about the current industrial revolution than the couple we've gone through before is the impact of artificial intelligence and, 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 and bioengineering as well. I mean, the robotics, the, the, the computer systems involved here, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to completely change the types of jobs that can disappear. And we're not going to be able to replace as many of them. So there are a few paths forward here. And one of them is to break that whole concept that the labor is that cent- is central to the economy itself, which means realistically we have to get past the whole left-right paradigm. It's one of the reasons that I find it hilarious when, you know, uh, when, when people keep trying to reuse the same like capitalist socialist dichotomy that made a great deal of sense in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and trying to apply it to the 21st century. But it's always clunky. It, it's, they're never good fits, uh, largely because the basic foundations of the economy are shifting and we have to recognize that. Realistically, we can get somewhere good from here, but it does involve a, a paradigm shift in the way we're approaching work. We could, by this point, already be working 25-hour weeks instead of working the 55-hour weeks a lot of people are stuck on now or taking on multiple jobs and struggling to get by if we simply had set up the incentives right economically to pay people more money as the amount of work required goes down. Mm -hmm. So your labor hour would be worth more, not less, where what we've done is we've allowed automation to decrease the value of our labor, which means we have to work more. It should have done the opposite. And right-wing economists, you know, and economists in general, I mean, going back to like John Stuart Mill in the early 19th century, John Maynard Keynes in the middle of the 20th, they were always saying that we would eventually get to basically a leisure economy where people didn't have to work the long drudgery hours. They would have tons of free time for family. And one of the ways we can get there is to start valuing other types of work socially. You know that huge swaths of the American population do not actually contribute to our GDP? I'll, I'll, I mean, even before getting into politics, I was working 60-hour weeks as an educator. And yeah. every one of those hours contributes nothing. I'm not considered a productive worker. Education doesn't count. Child care doesn't count. Health care doesn't count. Elder care doesn't count. Musicians and artists don't count. Tons of professions simply do not matter to the economy. If we change the way the economy is conceived... We can value that work and compensate it. If we do that, money still circulates. People are still able to buy things. The economy continues to grow. If we don't value that labor, but that becomes the labor that's left, you're never going get to get rid of things like education, health care, elder care, child care. Those will be around. Yeah. It'll be a lot harder for robots to replace us there. But if those don't really count economically, you see the problem? We're, 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 like, we're basically walking off a cliff. Yeah, yeah, and it it kind of gets back to something I've said a couple times, which is it's it, it sounds like it's an issue of marketing, it's an issue of positioning, it's an issue of framing. One question for you to to lean back on some old marketing. There's a, a mindset that it's the threat of poverty or the misery of poverty that motivates people to do better, motivates people to do more productive. What are your thoughts on that? It's it's psychological nonsense. I mean, it's and it's and it's authoritarian nonsense at that. It basically mm-hmm. suggests that we have to torture people into performing even uh, you know tolerably well. It, it doesn't make a great deal of sense. Yeah. We are hardwired to want to do something useful with our lives, to have some kind of meaning in our lives, to have some sort of purpose. But people don't necessarily might not want to like work at your company for fifty hours a week for mm-hmm. low pay. We still want to do something. Yeah. Realistically speaking. 
most people are not going to want to just like kick back, roll a blunt and never move off their sofa. Mm-hmm. Again, it'd be a pretty small part of the population yeah. says there's nothing worthwhile. But if he doesn't have to put in 50 hours a week in the office and can instead spend 20 hours a week playing music or paint, doing paintings or taking care of his, his par- elder parents or something, it's still work. Well, well, and that's something too that that I see here. And to add a little color, I I did a lot of work uh, in the past with companies in Scandinavia, so I'm very familiar with the Nordic model and how they work. There's some stuff that would not apply here. Uh, I won't get into that now, but there is a general understanding that everybody deserves a certain standard of living. And part of that is quality of life. Part of that is that the economy should allow everybody to have a quality of a certain quality of life. And if you look at the effect of this, of the American economy on families, on people's mental health, you know, the reality is, is in, in, I mean, I'm sure this is the same in Southern California. It's definitely, it definitely plays out here in, in Boston where most families with two kids, you need two parents working full time to get by and 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 that's just to afford childcare housing all the basic right. necessities that negatively impacts family time it negatively impacts the family unit um there are so many things that we consider core to our values uh i think that this current system doesn't uh, doesn't allow or, right. or c- crowds out it really gets back to the question of framing if you want to talk about what are good, solid family values? Mm-hmm. And you want people to, to spend time with their kids and not have them off in like childcare centers or, or shunted around to like after school activities because you can't deal with it. If you want people not to be just stressed to the gills and basically going postal, right? Yeah. I mean, Americans are less happy than people in most rich countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the reason for that is pretty obvious. You know, we are being overworked, uh, you know, uh, and all of that is, is deliberate in terms of the policy. But if you think about the framing, I mean, the, the family values approach would be to massively increase our pay so people don't have to work the hours that they do and they can spend time with their kids and they can actually, you know, I don't know, raise their kids. Mm-hmm. You're alone when you're forced into it. If childcare costs 12 to 18 grand a year, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a hell of a burden. I, so I have four kids myself. When we had three, my wife had to stop working. And because we just, the cost of childcare exceeded what she could make. Right. And, and granted we're, now. We're for no other reason than to pay for childcare, which makes no sense at all. A hundred percent. The society valued raising children and compensated it. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly children do have, I don't know, let's put it in blunt terms. They have economic value, don't <laughs> they? Don't they become adults at some point to make money, right? And buy stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so my kids buy maybe, stuff. Yeah, maybe raising them well. Yep, is uh, should be considered a job, mm-hmm. and in that sense, then compensated. So not only are you putting money in the hands of people at the time to keep the economy growing, but you're valuing and giving a sense of dignity to the labor that people are already expending. One of the things that really stood out to me about my conversation with Liam was the fact that we can actually rethink the whole concept of economic output and the whole concept of labor to be a little more than working ourselves to the bone so we can get a bigger TV. 
If you look at the state of work-life balance in Europe, for instance, they pay higher taxes, they get higher wages, but they also have more time to spend with family and friends via more vacation time and fewer hours per week spent at work. And in terms of per capita GDP growth over the last 40 years, there's not a huge difference between EU member states and the United States. And I'm going to be digging a little bit more into this next month. Now, as I mentioned, you can find supporting resources and the show notes on YDHTY.com. And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to YDHTY on your favorite podcasting platform. Write a nice review if you wish, or share it with friends, acquaintances, enemies, really anyone you feel this would resonate with. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac. Editorial advice is dispensed by Adam Pez Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in deep purple North Carolina by the big Gino Jason Putney. Until the next. <laughs>